0: Thank you, Matt. All right, good morning. How are we doing? Good. Good? Well, I just want to set the record straight before I get started. It is not a shadow that you're seeing on my lip. It is a mustache. And uh, when Matt asked me to preach, I was not planning on having a mustache. Um, So I just want to publicly uh, shift blame to Slayton Goff for convincing me. He's not even here, so... Willis, I hope you're recording so he can hear, hear that. Um, my name is Craig. Excited to preach today's text this morning. Uh, if you are a parent here to a child older than two years old, I want you to know that you have experienced firsthand a, a very deep theological tension that we see in today's text. Uh, and to my many friends who've had uh, their first child in the past year, one day you'll see when they turn two, when they begin to uh, develop the ability to run and hit and scream and yell and say very personal and hurtful things uh, like, "I you stink, daddy, or um, I don't like you, daddy. That is when you have to learn these two things um, that are at attention, how to love your child and how to discipline your child. And that's what we see in today's text. I love my boys unconditionally, uh, but they very conditionally obey me. And uh, the, the difference between obedience and love is, is, is what we see in today's text. And it's in the times of repeated tantrums and repeated uh, disobedience that I learn how to love and discipline. And it is in this tension that we see in our, our text today. The tension between God the Father's love for his people, Israel, and God the Father's judgment of his people's sin. And we see this first in Exodus when God reveals himself to Moses and he proclaims, The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, And sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. On the one hand, you have the faithfulness of God, the faithful love of God. And on the other hand, you have justice against disobedience. A tension only found in a good father who unconditionally loves his children and justly disciplines them when they sin against him. And nowhere in the Old Testament is this tension found clearer than in the book of Judges. And in Judges chapter 2, verse 1, God tells Israel, I will never break my covenant. I will never break my covenant. So he's faithful. But you have not obeyed me. Therefore, the people around you will be a thorn in your side and their gods will be a trap. And this is just what we've seen over and over again throughout uh, this series. God will never break his covenant because of his love. But they have disobeyed, so there must be justice. And as we've seen each time God raises up a judge to deliver Israel, they are unfaithful and abandon him and are unfaithful to the covenant again. So with this tension, is God always going to be gracious no matter what? Or is Israel, um, as they repeatedly abandon Yahweh and are repeatedly unfaithful to the covenant, is God going to judge Israel and give them what they deserve? The question, simply put, for this morning is, how can God both righteously judge Israel and be gracious to them? This is the quintessential question of the entire Old Testament, but specifically of judges, and a question that we get to see most clearly in our text today in chapter 10. Last week, Matt finished with two judges Tola, who served as judge for 23 years, and Jair, who served as judge for 22 years. So we've got 55 years from the last part we we picked up on where Abimelech uh, was crushed by the millstone from the unnamed woman. 55 years, and we don't get much information about Israel's faithfulness or unfaithfulness in that time. Uh, Apparently, the only pertinent information that we do get is that Jair had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and ruled 30 towns. Um, I don't know about you, but I've got three sons. If I had 27 more sons and all their legacy was that they rode on 30 donkeys, I'd be pretty disappointed. (laughs) So that's what we get. That is our our lead up into our passage today. Um, And then it begins with what's become the most common sentence in Judges. Then the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But this time it is so much worse. It is not just one God that they turn to. It is, uh, they list seven gods here. They worship the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. They abandoned the Lord and did not worship him. Israel has grown weary of God's protection and blessing, and they have grown, grown interested in the gods around them. And seven of them, to be specific. And anytime seven is mentioned in Scripture, it is usually symbolic of what is uh, total or complete. And so the idea here is that Israel has been totally or completely unfaithful to the covenant. And if you remember from Judges 2, what did God say would be the result of such disobedience? The other nations would be a thorn in their side, and their gods would be a trap. And this is what we see happen. Forsaking the Lord, abandoning Him, and sinning against Him is deadly and costly, and as we've seen, it just leads to worse and worse sin and suffering. The more you leave the door cracked to sin, the wider it's going to get. Allowing an unconfessed sin in your life is like feeding a lion cub in your home. At first, it doesn't seem so bad. It's just a lion cub. You can control it. It's not too bad. But after you feed it and conceal it more and more, that lion cub will grow and become more vicious and hungry and eventually turn on you and your family. And this is what sin does. It lurks and it kills and it destroys. It always drags you down further and further than you wanted to go when you began. The cycle of unfaithfulness that we've seen in judges is more like a downward spiral. Each time they're unfaithful, It just gets worse. And that's what we've seen. All series long, we've been saying idolatry leads to slavery of that idol. And this is what we see in this chapter. Israel has chosen their gods and they are about to be stuck with them. They've made their bed and now they have to lie in it. And the Lord responds to their unfaithfulness. The text says, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he sold them to the Philistines and the Ammonites. His anger burned. The language here is not like a pet peeve or he's, he's kind of frustrated at them. He is fuming mad. And how did God describe himself in Exodus? He's slow to anger. So if he is burning mad, that means Israel worked really, really hard to get God to this point. Unfortunately, the reputation of the Old Testament is that God is this angry, wrathful God. But in fact, it is not that. God is always angry. It's that Israel is always disobedient. The reputation of the Old Testament should be that Israel is so unfaithful that they make a gracious God seem like a wrathful God. So here we have Israel abandoning God again for seven other pagan gods. And what is the result of such abandonment? The text says they were shattered and crushed for 18 years. This is the lowest point for Israel so far in Judges. 18 years. That is a long time to be shattered and crushed by the nations around you. And it wasn't just one part of Israel. The text describes it being all of Israel. It says the Ammonites oppressed them along the Jordan. Then they crossed the Jordan to also oppress Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. It says they were, quote, greatly oppressed. And what does Israel do every time they are oppressed? They cry out to the Lord for help, which sounds like a good thing, but remember, it's been 18 years before they finally cried out to the Lord for help. But they do finally cry, and they confess their sin this time, and they say, we have sinned against you and abandoned you. But God knows the intention of their heart. He knows the motivation for their confession. He knows that they just want to be freed from slavery, not because they want to serve the Lord. They want to be delivered, but they don't necessarily care who delivers them. It is not repentance. It's self-preservation. So the Lord responds to this half-hearted confession, and he says, When the Egyptians, Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, and Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, did I not deliver you from them? But you have abandoned me and worshipped other gods." Therefore, I will not deliver you again. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them deliver you whenever you are oppressed. That's got to be the most terrifying words ever written in the Bible. God tells them to go and cry out to the gods who the psalmist describes as having ears but cannot hear. Go cry out to those gods who cannot hear you and here God lists seven groups that he has delivered them from. Seven. He's reminding them that he has been faithful and delivered them totally and completely every single time. But this time he will not deliver them. He will let them continue to be enslaved by the gods that they have chosen. And this is similar to Romans 1 where we see Paul saying that God delivers the wicked over to their desires because they have served what what has been created rather than the creator. And our idols are not that much different than Israel's. They're just more subtle than they are in ancient Israel. Tim Keller says, idolatry and slavery go hand in hand. Idolatry leads to slavery and slavery to idolatry. So God says to the person who worships money, if you want to live for money instead of for me, then money will rule your life. It will control your heart and emotions. If you want to live for popularity instead of for me, then popular acclaim will rule and control you. If you want another god besides me, go ahead. Let's see how merciful it is to you, how effective it is in saving, in guiding, and enlightening you. We say this often, but we are not created to worship. We are created worshiping. We are always worshiping something and when that worship is for creation instead of creator, it will enslave you and rule your heart. And over and over again God has poured out his grace because he is abounding in grace to Israel and he's slow to anger. And instead of committing to him more seriously because of his kindness, Israel just rebels more. What are they doing here? They're taking advantage of his grace. One author described Israel's view, of God as a bomb shelter God meaning they only run to him when they're under attack the same author also described him as a as a warm vending machine in the sky where you only go to him when you want something israel only turned to god when they felt oppression and needed his help which is a good thing the problem is not that they turned to god when they needed help the problem is that they abandoned him once they got his help There's a very important distinction between wanting saving versus wanting the Savior. This is like treating God like a bomb shelter or a vending machine. I want you until my finances are more stable. I want you until my business is back on track. I want you until my investments look more promising. I want you until I'm no longer depressed. I want you until I find a spouse. I want you until I find a better job. I want you until my kids' behavior issues are fixed. Ask yourself, do I only pursue him when I want blank from him? Again, the problem is not pursuing God because you want something from him. The problem is if you want that something more than you actually want him. Because Israel had treated God this way for so long, they grew accustomed to his grace. They began to expect it without any devotion in return. But God is not a naive God who needs our love. He is not desperate for our attention and our love. In fact, we are the desperate ones that need him. God is not a prop you pull out when you need him. He is not a weapon that you wield when you need him. He is not a safety net that you fall into when you need him. He is not a bomb shelter you get in when you need him. He is not a vending machine in the sky when you need him. He is the creator and king of all things. And he is worthy of all our praise and honor and glory and devotion and affection. He is the ultimate authority. And don't miss this. He is also love. And this authority and love is why he is father. Before God even created, he was Father. It is his heart, it is who he is. And God the Father disciplines because he loves us, not because he wants to subdue us with his wrath. I discipline my boys because I love them, not because I want power over them. Samuel and Thomas are our twin boys. They're a year and a half, and their all-time favorite hobby in the world is to run out into the street. Uh, they love it, they're obsessed with it, um, I think they might be addicted to it. It's, it's, it's a sight to see. Anytime the doors open or, like, the gate in our backyard is open, they're immediately taken off for the street, and it's, like, toddling as fast as they can, arm is pointing at the street, and they're just, like, they only know, like, five words, but street is one of them. They're just yelling, street, as they run to the street. It's, it is, uh, we're pretty concerned. Um, <laughs> But we have to discipline them when they do this because it's obviously extremely dangerous. Uh, But we discipline them because we want to protect them and because we love them. Now, there is an important distinction between our discipline and the Lord's discipline. You see, I am not holy. Sin against me is not deserving of judgment. For a holy father, judgment for sin is death. This is why there is a tension. If God did not love Israel, he would have just given them the judgment that they deserved. He would have just killed them all because that is what they're deserving of. But instead of destroying them, he disciplines them. It is actually out of love and grace for them, out of a hope that they would one day turn to him again and obey him. He is the good king And he is the good father. There's a famous C.S. Lewis line in the Chronicles of Narnia where the beaver is telling Susan about Aslan. The beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You must understand that God is king, but that's not enough. You also must understand that he is love and that he is father. And the good father demands your obedience so that you may love him and love others. And this is just parenting 101. Obedience leads to blessing and disobedience leads to discipline. And this is exactly what God is doing here With Israel. So Israel confesses in an attempt to avoid further oppression, but now they come back to the Lord a second time with a more repentant heart. They say, Deal with us as you see fit, only rescue us today. They plead for immediate rescuing, but they're at least trusting that their discipline will be just. Deal with us as you see fit. And I think this is a genuine repentant heart here because of what they do next. Israel begins to rid themselves of the idols and waits for the Lord. It is during this time when they are truly repenting that God's heart for them is broken because of the genuineness of their confession the second time. Keller says of this repentant response, why is that a sign of real faith? If we say to God, I want you because I want X, or I need you to give me X. We reveal that X is our real ultimate God. When we say, I want you regardless of whether you give me X, Y, or Z, then we are making the true God our God again. Repentance is not just sorrow for what you did, it is sorrow for why you did it. There's a difference between feeling sorry for spending too much time on social media versus feeling sorry that you long for the approval of others more than you long for the approval of God. Repentance is acknowledging your love and worship of something else, ridding yourself of it, and then choosing to love God instead. And how does God respond to his children honestly and genuinely repenting? He becomes weary of their misery, Another translation is that he could not bear the suffering of Israel any longer. This is the heart of a good father, is it not? He could not bear the suffering of his children. And this is the heart of the father that we see all throughout Scripture, and specifically all throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 103 says, He will not always accuse us or be angry forever, He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His faithful love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. One commentator said, our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. But notice that it does not say Yahweh delivers them. It ends with God growing weary of their suffering, but it doesn't say that He delivers them. So the question remains will He deliver them? And if so, how? Let's look at the end of our passage. Chapter 10 ends with the Ammonites gathering together to attack Israel again. And Israel turns to Yahweh for help, right? Negative. They do not. They begin to look for a man. They say, what man will deliver us? And it is in chapter 11, where our text ends today, that I get to introduce you to the next character, Jephthah. And the text describes him as a mighty and valiant warrior, which is exactly what Israel is looking for. But he is definitely not the character that one would expect to deliver them. He is the son of a prostitute, But when his dad had sons with his wife, his half-brothers rejected him, cast him out, took away his inheritance, and he fled to a foreign land. Then, there, he leads a gang of misfits to raid villages around them. Here we have the son of a prostitute, a reject, an outcast, and the leader of a gang of what Scripture says, worthless men. In the meantime, the Ammonites make war with Israel, and Israel becomes desperate for a savior. Interestingly, though, it still does not say if he will deliver them. So Israel turns to their last hope, the illegitimate son of Israel who Tim Keller described as a crime boss, the reject and outcast of his own family. This is a last hope indeed. So they come to Jephthah and ask him for help. Ask him to fight for them. But Jephthah's response is similar to the Lord's in the passage before. You come to me only when you need help. You rejected me. You abandoned me. Why should I help you? But Israel insists and asks again. And how does Jephthah respond to their second request? This is similar to the first story. Again, this whole time, God is suspiciously quiet. Their last hope, Jephthah, responds to Israel, who's looking for a man to save them. And this outcast crime boss tells them, I'll fight for you, but only if the Lord hands them over to me. If the Lord. Jephthah knows Israel's hope is, is not in his ability to fight, but it is only in the Lord. Yahweh, who's been growing weary of their suffering over this time, watching them repent, Watching them about to be attacked quietly and subtly raises up a mighty warrior who trusts in the Lord. The son of a prostitute will be the one to deliver the people who prostituted themselves to the other gods. Isn't that a paradox? What Israel rejected, God chose to use as an instrument of deliverance, and this would not be the last time that Israel would, would reject the one that God would send to rescue them. And so Jephthah becomes their next judge. And what's important to note from both of these passages is that Israel had to humble themselves twice. The second time that they came to the Lord and to Jephthah, they had to humble themselves and accept the rule of their deliverer. If they wanted Yahweh to save them, they had to serve him. If they wanted Jephthah to fight for him, then they had to submit to his rule. And this is no different for us as Christians. When Christ, our ultimate deliverer, rescues us from the kingdom of darkness, we then submit to his reign and his rule in our life. And this is just a wonderful invitation to the good life. Service to King Jesus leads to the good life because he is the good king and God is the good father. And just like with parenting, obedience to the father leads to blessing in protection, in spiritual maturity, in peace, and joy. This is the invitation that we have. But as God's children, we still wrestle with this question. Does God still faithfully love me even when I keep abandoning him like Israel? Does my unfaithfulness deserve judgment or is he faithful no matter how disobedient I am? Similar to the question I asked at the beginning. How can God both righteously judge Israel and be gracious to them? How can Israel deserve death for sin against the holy God and that same holy God be gracious to them? There has to be judgment for sin, and judgment for sin is death, so someone has to die. And in order for the covenant to be fulfilled, someone has to be faithfully obedient to the covenant. Does Israel die? Was Israel faithful to the covenant? Have you died for your sins? Are you faithfully obedient to the covenant? I hope you see where I'm going. No one, not one, is righteous. All throughout Judges, we see the Lord say, But you, but you have turned from me. But you have forsaken me. But you have disobeyed me. In our text, we see him say, But you have abandoned me and worshipped other gods. But the gospel flips this on its head. And after the tension of judgment and grace are fully met at the cross, God is no longer saying, but you. Instead, we get to hear the beautiful words, but God. Read with me from Ephesians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace." But God, only God himself could become a man, faithfully live out uh, and be obedient to the covenant and pay the penalty for their sin and our sin. Only God can do this. His death is what settled the debts that we had. And it's only at the cross where we see that tension of judgment and grace Resolved, The tension between God's faithfulness and our unfaithfulness resolved. God just grew more and more re- weary of their suffering throughout the rest of the Old Testament. He desperately wanted them to be obedient so he could, they could enjoy life with him. But he could not bear the suffering anymore. To the point where judgment is paid in full by his very own son. His love is so deep that he was willing to judge his son and Jesus' love is so deep that he was willing to be innocently judged by the Father, willing to be the sacrificial lamb on the cross in our place. That way, all of us could be known and loved by the Father. No longer do we find God saying, I saved you over and over and over again, but you abandoned me. Now we get to hear the good father saying, you abandoned me over and over and over again, but I saved you. This is the heart of a good father who loves us and a good king who we serve, and he is worthy of all our obedience and devotion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the good king, that you are supreme over all. Thank you that you are the good father that loves us unconditionally. Lord, when we turn from you and abandon you over and over again, you gently restore us and lead us back to your grace. I thank you that you have done this Lord, I pray that you would reveal your heart this morning, your fatherly heart, to encourage and comfort those who have lost sight of this, to call back those who have turned to the idols of this world. I pray that that would lead us to worship and praise you for who you are.